Chapter 3 focused on the calling of Samuel as a prophet. So they are looking at um, uh, this uh, young boy learning to hear and understand the word of God. And in that chapter, moving from uh, the first verse, which said the word of the Lord was rare in those days, to the word of the Lord uh, was known to be with Samuel uh, at Shiloh. And then the last time we started into chapter 4. And I noted uh, uh, when we started this chapter, we made it through the first 11 verses, that we hit a section of the book of Samuel, we hit a transition point. The focus is moving away from Samuel for a time, and now the chief central actor, if you will, is not a person but a thing. The action's all going to be focused around the Ark of the Lord. And um, in the first part of the chapter, we see Israel uh, suffering a defeat at the hands of the Philistines. It was a bad defeat. They lost 4,000 men. So they go, they take the Ark from Shiloh and have a subsequently worse defeat, um, exponentially worse defeat, losing 30,000 men. Uh, Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are killed and the Ark is taken. So today we're picking up in this particular story with how the news of um, this military and um, religious disaster is received by Eli's household. So uh, if you'll turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 4 and we'll start in verse 12. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, What is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, How did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines. There has been also a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died. For the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel forty years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured, and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for the pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women attending her said to her, Do not be afraid. For you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God has been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. 
And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. Uh, Let's pray, and we can work our way through um, these reactions. Almighty God, we do uh, worship and praise you, and we thank you for giving us the past weeks in which you could... um, Help us to understand the missionary opportunities both in our own backyard here in Massachusetts and your work and missionary opportunities for us in Africa and Uganda as well. We thank you that you are a God of history and the God of history and that you use uh, these stories of Israel's past to instruct us into your character and to how uh, you are bringing your will to pass on earth in ways that we often don't understand, uh, ways that are difficult for us to see, but uh, instructing us always to trust in your sovereign hand. Lord God, as we work through the words of um, this book today, I ask that you would give us uh, ears and hearts to, to hear, that you would instruct us, And not just by words of our mouths, but by your Holy Spirit working in us and making those words um, illuminate your truth. Uh, Be with us now in the coming hour, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. So in these first um, uh, four chapters, several times I've asked uh, the question, what does this passage tell us about a particular person? And several times I've asked you what this tells us about Eli. So um, now that we've come to this this last section of Eli's life, what does his reaction to this news tell us about Eli? What do we learn about Eli from the manner of his death? And while you're thinking about that, I'm going to clean off my glasses because you're all very spotty right now. Go ahead, Mike. Yeah, isn't it interesting how, um, as it's narrated, it's presenting these as a series of distinct events. Their people have fled from the battle. Israel suffered a great defeat. Your sons have been killed. And it's only at the news of the ark that he um, physically reacts um, falling off and and breaking his neck. So um, this concern for the ark that he shows. Yeah, they've come, they've taken the ark from Shiloh and you get this sense almost that Eli thought this was a bad idea. Um, You know, he's... You know, they're confident having the ark is going to bring them victory, and Eli's trembling. Um, I, he's, he's worried for the ark. What else would you say we uh, learned from Eli's death? Hey. Yeah, I mean, it's this. It's a continuation of that picture we've had of Eli throughout. 
Um, I mean, here is a man who is so shocked by Hannah's praying, she thinks she's, he thinks she's drunk, but then gives her the, you know, the exact word she needs to hear uh, in response to that. Here's a man who knows his sons are doing wrong and he corrects them, but he doesn't remove them from their positions of power. He lets them continue uh, to serve as priests. Uh, here's a man who um, you know, gives Samuel instructions on how to hear the word of God. You know, that's God speaking to you. Go in and say, yes, Lord, your servant's listening. You know, he teaches them how to respond. And yet that word of prophecy that he gets uh, through Samuel is judgment on him for his failure as priest. So in here we have this man, he's he's lost his sons, these things that have sort of uh, he's he's been protecting them rather than uh, protecting the ritual services toward God. And yet his he's trembling, not because of their safety, because of the ark. Um, you know, it's that picture of Eli we've had throughout. You know, he knows um, he knows what the service of the Lord is to look like. He knows exactly um, what uh, our reactions to God should be. And yet sometimes he's failed to act on that knowledge. Come on. And you're, I mean, I had a question that sort of prompted that, that same kind of thought. I had the same thought. How much are we exactly like you are? You know, having the will of God recorded for us, studying it, knowing it, but then failing to put it into full practice. Um, not acting on it in the face of familial pressure in his case or societal pressure. What people think if I actually express this kind of trust? Um, you know, well, people think if I put judgment on their sons, my sons, you know, will that reflect on me? You know, I love my sons. I think, you know, they deserve to be killed for how they're corrupting the religion of Israel. But they're my sons. Um, you know, he's us uh, in so many ways. And, you know, there the heaviness. I mean, if we think about, you know, what was one of the chief sins of his sons, it was they were they weren't taking the portion that God had allotted them. They were taking the whole thing. I mean, so I mean, we could sort of see the the greed. And is has Eli been benefiting from his son's greed? I mean, again, it might be a little stretch, but we have seen. I mean, here we have this. He's very heavy. 
and we've had earlier accountings of um, there's some there have been sins around how the priests have been um, receiving the food uh, portion that God's allotted to them and that they've been taking uh, not just their portion but they've been taking God's portion as well Michael. Even stoic in the face. I mean, you know, and, and we sort of talked about that um, on that when he received that news. You know, like when he doesn't plead, he doesn't fight back. Um, you know, he doesn't wrestle. He's just like, okay, that's what God wills, and that's what's going to happen. Um, but double-minded, I think, is a great word, both for him and for us. I mean, again, it's, you know, we struggle with this duality of. Of um, having hearts changed by God and yet still dwelling in, with bodies that um, still dwelling with the flesh, uh, as Paul says. Um, to, this sort of helps transition to the next part of the chapter. The ark being gone. Um, what does that mean? And here we have, um, uh, so we have the, these deaths followed up with the birth. And we have the birth of this child, Ichabod, um, which literally means no glory or where is glory. This is not a child destined for the Olympics. Um and, you know, at his birth, you have this pronouncement um, twice pronounced. The glory has departed from Israel. The ark's gone, but has glory, God's glory, departed from Israel. And if we think of glory, um, the root of that word is weight. So it's literally the weight of God's presence has departed Israel. Has it? Is she right in this declaration? Okay. Um, So we know God's, uh, I mean, one of the points uh, throughout the Old Testament is this isn't just a local deity residing in this one particular place that only has control over one. This is the... Uh, universal God. This is the God sovereign uh, over the entirety of the earth, not just one little segment of it. This is a God who isn't just uh, locally present, but universally present. What else would you say? Yeah. 
with this reaction of glory and to part of Israel. Has it? What does it mean? For the glory of God to depart from Israel. Yeah, and that's that sense of what this means. I mean, Israel has suffered a great defeat um, on this day. But the Philistines have the ark. And as we're going to see, um, we're going to uh, turn to chapter 5 in a little bit. We're going to see they interpret it as not just a defeat of Israel, but a defeat of Israel's God. So, in a sense, uh, Israel hasn't just suffered a defeat. God's lost that day because his people have been defeated and the ark which is supposed to symbolize his his glorious presence among his people is gone still uh, I think the fact that the people uh, are the ones who decided they would bring the ark in they didn't consult with God in another portion of the Old Testament that's the way you win battles you talk to the Lord and find out how you should go about it and if you yeah, that the, the ark, um, instead of the ark leading them, they're leading the ark. Um, you know, they've replaced the proper order of, of how, uh, the proper order of instructions. You know, who's giving the commands when this um, mighty symbol of God's presence moves. I mean, I, I talk about Exodus all the time because our Bible study is studying Exodus. And I was really struck of how, you know, the ark is taking Israel places. You know, it's taking them the long way instead of going the direct way to it's taking them the long way. It turns them back. You know, all these sort of um, seemingly, uh, you know, unexplainable, wandrous, uh, ambling through the land that, that they're doing. Um, but that's the ark leading them. And here we have a situation, instead of the ark taking Israel out in the battle, they, people went to Shiloh and took the ark. Which is the, you know, I said this a couple of weeks ago, this is the exact same action the Philistines, the same word. The Israelites take the ark, and then the Philistines took the ark from Israel. Loss, when the ark is lost, 
there's this sense now that, well, what, what are people going to say about you, God? And I think that there's this loss of confidence in the one that they serve. Yeah, his, is the ark being lost, does that mean God's, God's defeated, that God is not as powerful as we once thought? Yeah, and again, um, we're going to come to chapter 5, and we're going to see the Philistines are treating it. I, I think there's, the way the Philistines are treating it is the exact same way Israel's been treated. I think our author is putting these things two side by side by saying, you know, we're going to see these Philistines with their idols, and they're treating the ark just like it. But, it's, you know, we're going to have a good laugh at that. You know, you know it's, it's a really funny story. Um, but... The serious part of that funny story is this is exactly how you've been treating the ark and treating God, that it's a thing rather than uh, a person. And I don't want to take away that. I mean, there's a good part of this reaction, too, but... Um, I think it's part of this sort of God in the box. Um, The, the priesthood was going to be cut off from him. So he's going to lose, the family line's going to lose the high, high priesthood. Um, the rest of his offspring are going to have short lives. And it does talk about, it, it, it doesn't say the line's going to be cut off. And it says there's going to be one who continues, and it's, it's not, his life is not going to be a happy life. Doug. shouldn't have left. Let's go back. You know, and so all, and then we don't have food. Let's go back. And we have manna. We're tired of that. We don't want that. Let's go back. And so over and over again, we find that they don't understand that this is not just a God, but the God. And that he's not in this place, this one in this ark. Just as even at the time when Moses left to get the Ten Commandments, and they make this little idol, this golden calf, thinking that they can put God in a figure. And so they're aware of the gods of their enemies. And so they, they so frequently just don't get it. They, they forget or they get faithless. Whatever it is, they just don't understand it. And so here, you know, by saying, oh no, the ark is gone, therefore God is gone, they've been doing that for their whole history. We lost. God's not with us. Um, yeah, there's a learning curve. And... Um, and the length of this learning curve, I think, is where we should take <laughs> great comfort. Um, it's not because of the steadfast devotion of the people. It's because of the steadfast devotion and remembrance of God to the covenant he's made with those people. Uh, all right. Well, let's, um, let me read chapter 5 uh, for us. It's a short chapter, and um, 
I, I have to admit, this is one of my favorite, um, just from an entertainment standpoint, one of my favorite chapters of the, uh, of the Bible. When the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priest of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of God, of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord, or the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of God of Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. But soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They've brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent, therefore, and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel. Let it return to its own place, that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. So... um, so first, here, what do the Philistines want with the ark? And what do they think they have when they have the ark? Alright, so they think they think they have they've got Israel's God. And we saw, you know, that was their reaction when they heard the ark had come into the camp of Israel. Not just that this object had come into the camp, but Israel's God has come into their camp. Yeah, they've taken the God of Israel and they brought it into the temple of their God and sort of set it before him. Yeah, that, 
you know, here we have a symbolic representation. Our God is greater than your God. We captured your God, and now it sits at the feet of our God. So it's sort of this uh, religious warfare going on. What else would you say about this um, This. Uh, what do they think they have when they have the ark? What, what's going on in this bringing it into the temple of Dagon? Yeah, there's military victory as well. Um, in the ancient Near East, to take uh, your enemy's god was a sign that you completely subjugated that people. Um, you have, I mean, if we sort of think of the gods as being the, the hearts of the people, you've taken their heart. You've taken... Uh, their central place of spiritual power. So there is this military element to it. This is a sign of we've completely devastated Israel to the extent we have taken their spiritual power. We've taken their God and put it in the presence of our God. So it's all kinds of symbolic um, Sort of warfare going on here. So what happens in this temple? So if we've got the Philistines thinking they, that they've symbolically uh, shown the devastation of Israel, they've captured Israel's gods, they've completely subjugated Israel militarily, they've proved that their God is greater than Israel's God. What do we, how then do we interpret what's going on in the temple of Dagon? Yeah, the irony here is, is terrific. And, um, you know, this is intended, I mean, it, 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 it's funny. And, I, you know, if you think of how Israel, having this story told, you know, being first in oral tradition before it's written down, you know, how this story being told would elicit <laughs> but it's this delicious irony of here we have um, you know two inanimate objects have been placed in a room, and this one, this this god of uh, of the Philistines, is prostrate before the you know before this ark. It's face forward in that position of worship. <laughs> oh, Dagon. Can get the cloth out here, dust it off, put it back up. Yeah, there's that irony. They're having to pick their God up off the floor and put it back in his place. You know, that he has a place and we're picking the God up and putting it back in the place. Again, it's this, you know, again, you can hear the Israelites sort of guffawing. They're having to pick their God up and put it back. So we've got them falling the first day, and now what happens the next day they come in? Yeah, and not just, uh, it's not just the idea that it's fallen and broken, but it's the idea it's fallen and the hands and, and head are not just broken off, they're cut off. And they're not just sort of lying on the floor. It's like... You know, they're placed in the doorway. They're sitting on the threshold. So, you know, it's not just sort of you come into the room. It's before you even get into the room. There's the head and hands of your God. Sort of, hello. 
I mean, again, there is to think about the the symbolic aspect of this. Um, if 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 the Philistines think this is a warfare between their God and Israel's God, here we have that warfare being acted out not on a battlefield, but in this temple and the symbolic force of having the severed heads, head and hands of this God greeting the priest as they enter. Um, is you know it's amazing, uh, and it's this part of the story again. What the what you know, head hands? That's what you do at, after a battle. You show that you're militarily superior. You show you have complete victory by severing the head, severing the hands. Later on, we're going to see um, the Philistines wanting to cut off body parts of Israelites as a sign of subjugation. So here we have a physical presentation that this God has been subjugated by the God of Israel. (laughs) You know, this God of stone is first worshiping and then (laughs) crawling out. You know, condemning Israel for their turning. Why are you turning to something you've whittled out of wood or carved out of stone? I mean, it is this sort of, you know, you made it and now you're lying before it. Which this of course goes back to what I was saying earlier with Moses and Aaron. The Israelites know what it's like to have one of these ridiculous calves and put faith in this. But what power did it have? It had nothing. And in the end, what did Moses do? He, he made it. He made them crush it up and drink it and get rid of it. I mean, he humiliated the people, killed, killed many of the Israelites who had done it. The table's got to be different. Yeah. Hey. And you again, there, and then there's I think a serious side of Israel's reaction. I mean, again, for me, you know, we're starting to see um, not just in what's happening in the temple, but in the later part of chapter five with all this death breaking out and diseases falling upon these different Philistine cities. That's what they expected the first time. So I think there's also going to be some of that. If we think about the reaction and be like, well, why weren't people dying from this when we went out into battle? Um, and which goes back to this, how they had been uh, misusing the ark. Uh, but there's this, the irony that God doesn't uh, need his people to, or their su- success isn't where his glory rests. 
Um, so we've got the, the first part, the sort of funny part. Um, uh, and notice how this is uh, even affecting the rituals. So verse 5. This is why the priest of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. So this isn't just something that's going to be told and you know, recounted in Israel. Um, this is something that affects the ritual practice in that temple from that point until this is written down. You know, from then on, it's the priest or you know, don't step on crack or you break Dagon's back. Yeah, you'd think they shut the doors, Um, but no, you know, they continue on, George. Yeah, let's get rid of this the, this other god that is bringing our god into um, disrepute. Uh, let's send him away. Um, so uh, the last part of the chapter um, focuses on the hand of the Lord. So what does it mean for the hand of the Lord to be heavy or on the Philistines or against the Philistines? So what does it mean for the hand of the Lord to come against these people? Yeah, and you get you get all kinds of uh, reverse diagnosis. Um, in chapter six, we get the mention of um, when they're sending the ark back, they're making little golden models of these tumors and also models of mice. So some people think, you know, is this a you know bubonic plague being carried by you know, fleas on on certain rats and they're breaking out and and the literal word is swelling. So is bubonic plague breaking out among the people? Um, but it doesn't seem to be a, a healthy presence for the people. Um, what else do we see coming out of this? The hand of the Lord being against the Philistines. Yeah, that you know they think they've con- they've captured the God of Israel and therefore they control Israel's God, and this is you know. Through God, through judgment upon them, is showing, um, n- no, no, no. <laughs> I haven't fallen into your hands. You've fallen into mine. I think it's interesting that the Philistine people aren't soldiers. After the army, what they did was to humiliate it by bringing it into Dagon's temple. God's first judgment against Dagon and saying, no, your God is not God. And then he goes to the very people who enacted this humiliation by capturing the ark and putting it in there. And so, and so basically, he lays waste to the God and now he lays waste to the people. 
Yeah, and notice how it's, you know, the, the Philistines, I talked about this, you know, usually we sort of use the word Philistine um, in modern parlance for backward, but they're, they're really urbanites, you know, they live in cities, um, they're much more sophisticated than Israel of this time period, and how it's, it's striking their urban core and then going out to, it says, you know, the territory around these cities. And then so Ashdod says, we don't want it. <laughs> Let's, where should we do it? Gath says, we'll take it. So they send it to Gath. Then the same thing happens in Gath. And then they say, oh, let's send it to Ekron. And, you know, Ekron's like, what are you trying to kill us? <laughs> we thought we, you know, we're on your side. Don't send this thing to us. Um, you know, it, so it, it becomes from this thing they want. And they want it and put it into their temple. To this sort of you know hot potato art, you know I don't want it, you want it, you know, you know tossing it back and forth among each other. So it's um, this thing, it's this reversal, as someone's already said. They think that um, that they have Israel's God, and then they realize that Israel's God is not being controlled by them. Yeah, and it's the and I'm so glad you you phrased it that way because this isn't just a message as ha ha look what happens to those Philistines. This is supposed to be instructive to Israel and to get them to think about that they've been handling the ark in a, a similar manner. Um, at the end of chapter four, Israel was defeated. God's glories departed, and now it's the Philistines who are suffering from God's glory. Um, it's, it's this idea, uh, God's saying to him, you don't control the ark. The God of the ark controls you. Um, other things you note or struck you about this chapter? Again, it's it's... It has that element of humor, but it also has that deadly seriousness involved as well. I mean, and it's not just physical affliction against the Philistines. um, It's also mental. I mean, they're in panic, deathly panic. And they realize, I mean, we haven't said anything about um, the instructiveness of this. I mean, if this is symbolic warfare then the Philistines are reading the symbols, um, you know, because they say the ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us for his hand is hard against us, against Dagon, our God. So if this is supposed to be communicative, we're seeing the Philistines get the message. Um, they are reading, they're interpreting their events um, in this way, it's not just Israel looking in and saying, ah, yes, our God defeated their God. It's them saying the God of Israel, this God we thought we controlled, is afflicting us. His hand is heavy against us. Yeah, and isn't it interesting? It's it's not an exodus of the people of Israel. It's an exodus of 
of the ark. <laughs> you know, it's uh, and the and what makes it uh, that sort of comparison so striking is in chapter four we know that the Philistines know the Exodus story. They know what happened to the Egyptians, and yet they and they think, oh, we get the ark, we get the power that smote the Egyptians, but. Yeah, it's not. They think they've got the God in the box and, you know, open it and, you know, our enemies will be destroyed. But it's the, you know, God isn't in this object. Yeah, they don't know the story well enough. They don't know that. <laughs> there was a God operating Yeah, I, I think you're exactly right. There's an escalation with the description in each story. First, we, we hear about these swellings, and then it's this swellings and panic, and then it's uh, deathly panic. It's not just people are suffering these swellings, but they're dying in large numbers from them. Um, there's an escalation. I mean, again, if this is sending a message, you know, we've got message one. They didn't get it. Hit them a little harder. Get the message yet? Nope. Hit them a little harder. So there is this escalation with each movement to each city. It seems like what's happening to that city is uh, is getting worse. I was trying to just think of my own reaction. Christians, people, someone said a Yeah, that we treat it um, mechanically. That you know, I I you know did all the you know right signs, and therefore um, you know this should result. You know, um, I once had a teacher who described it as Coke machine thought. You know, theology. I put my spiritual nickel in. I hit the button. You know, I should get. You know, now God, this machine should you know spit out. Um, what I'm supposed to get from it. I and, tend, to, tend to do it thinking of ways that God's answered my prayers the way I wanted them to. So I have to seek this will of the God um, who can do so much more than, than we ask and imagine. Um, and again, it's this idea that God here is doing all the things to the Philistines that Israel wanted them to do to the Philistines in chapter 4. But in chapter 4, they, because it's, they think, you know, they do this, God's going to do what they want. And, you know, the message is God's going to do what God wants in God's time. 
Not because, uh, not because you want them to, because that's what God wants. All right, well, that's a, uh, a good place to close. So um, next time, just a preview, um, we'll pick up chapter 6 and we'll see um, how the ark is sent back uh, to Israel. But um, let's close in a word of prayer. Almighty God, we do uh, bow before you and worship because we know that uh, you um, have brought us here um, not because we are better than other people or because we are um, good people and they're bad people, but that because we are people who need the love and redemption of Jesus Christ, that you are a God who is faithful, not because of our own faithfulness. And Lord God, as we uh, read this passage today, we see that you are a God of all the nations. You're not just a local deity of one particular people, but you are the sovereign God um, to whom everyone should bow. And we see uh, in this passage even a God of stone, of, of a dumb, uh, lifeless, physical object. Responding to you in the way that we should, that we should bow before you, that we should lay ourselves before you and worship. And we thank you that you give us that opportunity in the coming hour that we can come before you and not uh, go through rituals that we think you will uh, turn around and spit out blessing to us. But because this is the proper response in our relationship with you, that we come together as a people united as the body of Christ to worship you. Uh, You, the God of all heaven, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, who deserves all honor, glory, and praise. Amen.